This is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching, especially here at the church I serve, the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or for anyone who's looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. It's the basis for the sermon here at First Free Methodist Church on December 18, 2022. It's the fourth message in a series that we're calling the With Us God. It is our series through the season of Advent and Christmas that will hopefully open us up to the ways in which God is always present, always at work, and always with us in our lives. Throughout this series, we've been taking a look at each of the different characters in the nativity story of Jesus, and in some sense, that's really the pre-nativity story of Jesus. Over the last several weeks, we've talked about the the story in Luke chapter 1 about what happened to Zechariah. We've talked about the Annunciation to Mary. We've talked about the meeting between Mary and Elizabeth when they were both pregnant. And so we turn now to the the last character, really, that stands out in the story, and for that, we, for that we move away from Luke's gospel, but to Matthew's gospel, and it's the story of Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. As this text opens, we hear these words, now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. So it's Matthew's account of what happened with the birth of Jesus. And it opens with the problem that Joseph is facing in verses 18 and 19. Matthew begins with this kind of unusual statement in verse 18 when he says, Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. And so it's important for us to remember that different from Luke's audience, Matthew's audience for his gospel is a dominantly Jewish audience. So using lots of citations from the Old Testament, talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, and even pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, or the Greek word that's its equivalent, Christ, is very important in Matthew's gospel. And so he really signals that from the very beginning in verse 18 that we're talking about Jesus, the Messiah, the one who will come to save God's people. It says that uh, in verse 18 that when his mother Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man, did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. This is the problem that, that Joseph faces. Now, we've talked in passages over the last couple of weeks about what it means for Mary and Joseph to be betrothed. This is a, an arranged marriage between their two families. And so all the usual things that we might think of with a betrothal come into play. There's a dowry that's going to move from one household to another. It's, this is a, a, a transaction that's underway. It started with the initiation of the betrothal. And so when they were first betrothed to each other. This was before the angel Gabriel had appeared to Mary. This is before Joseph has this dream in which an angel speaks to him during his dream. So the betrothal was entered into conventionally, like any other betrothal would be. But in the midst of this betrothal, Mary has now turned up pregnant. So just to review, uh, young women were uh, given in betrothal, sometimes between the ages of 12, 13, maybe as late as 14, with a betrothal lasting about 12 months. The 12-month period was typically there so that the transaction could be arranged, that finances could be arranged between families, whatever they were going to be exchanging or bartering with each other as part of the arrangement for the marriage. But what we haven't talked about is how a betrothal can end. 
Uh, a betrothal can end in one of three ways. Either there's a charge of adultery that the man uh, makes against the woman, or in some rare cases, the woman makes against the man, um, although uh, that charge is hard to substantiate in the ancient world, uh, part of the patriarchal framework this entire story exists in. That's one reason, the charge of adultery. The second is that the man changes his mind. Again, in a patriarchal frame, uh, the woman doesn't get to change her mind, but the man does. And so there's a possibility that a betrothal could end also in the the husband-to-be changing his mind. Or th- the third way a betrothal can end is, as you might expect, that one of the two individuals dies before they can be married, in which case the betrothal is annulled. So you have three different ways a betrothal can end. And in this case, with Mary turning up pregnant in the midst of their betrothal, uh, the options one and two are on the table. There's a charge of adultery or the man changes his mind. And if the betrothal is going to end, it ends in divorce. Uh, we're used to a, a, a marriage engagement ending within our culture where maybe a ring is given back to somebody and, and there's a breakup and the, and the relationship is ended. But in this case, in this world of the first century in Palestine, uh, betrothal would end in divorce. There would have to also be then a contractual way in which the betrothal would end. So even though Joseph and Mary have not lived together, even though they've had no sexual relations with each other, their relationship has to end in a divorce. So Joseph has a couple options in front of them. One, he could move the charge of adultery. In other words, he could accuse Mary of adultery publicly, which is the most common thing that men would do when uh, their spouse-to-be turns up pregnant. That would create a huge public spectacle, and not only would it be a public spectacle, but it would likely result in Mary's death by stoning. Uh, It was not uncommon for this to happen in the ancient world. It's terribly tragic and unfortunate. But it is the reality that Joseph faces that if he were to accuse Mary publicly of adultery, of having a relationship with another man, uh, she could then be um, uh, stoned to death. So he chooses a different route, which is much more uncommon. He chooses this compassionate route open to him. What he decides to do is that he's going to divorce her in secret. This is really option number two, where it's uh, we talked about where the man changes his mind. So he would divorce her in secret. In order to do this, he would have to have a writ of divorce, which is nothing more than a, a note that's saying, I divorce you. <laughs> it could be written on the back of the equivalent of a cocktail napkin. And he only needs two witnesses to sign the decree. So by divorcing her in secret, there's no public spectacle. He's not making any kind of accusation against her. He's just simply saying he's decided that the betrothal will end. In this scenario, she will still bear the shame of being unwed with a child and no husband. So the social disgrace that she will suffer is going to be acute not nearly as acute of being publicly accused of adultery, but nonetheless painful for her. And so Joseph really believes that this is his best option to protect himself and the best thing he can do to protect Mary. And this opens up the key passageway to us here, that leaning into compassion is almost always the best choice. Joseph had every right to publicly accuse Mary of adultery. He chooses not to do so. 
His actions that he takes are consistent with mitigating the shame to himself and the potential punishments that Mary faced. Now, he chooses to lean into compassion. And the question he's holding is this, is how can the least amount of damage here be done? It's not about how the most amount of damage can be done. What's the least amount that can be done? And it's this kind of intentionality, this kind of thinking, that's not really grounded in fairness. You know, Joseph doesn't understand the dimensions of the story yet and exactly how Mary has come to be pregnant. So just hold that at bay for a moment. The kind of intentionality that he demonstrates is not grounded in fairness because he had a pathway toward fairness, which would be a public accusation against her. Instead, he lives in an economy of love. He chooses to find the most compassionate way he can to end the marriage or the betrothal leading the marriage, uh, reducing the amount of public shame he'll face, but also trying to do everything he can to mitigate the kind of shame that Mary might face. Even though it may seem a little backwards, a little antiquated, and certainly part of the patriarchal structure of this day and the misogynistic structure of this day, make no mistake, Joseph is trying to do the best he can within the social and cultural norms of his own day. Well, there's a solution that Joseph hasn't considered. He thinks the only options on the table for him are to either publicly accuse Mary of adultery or to simply end the betrothal uh, by kind of uh, going about a divorce proceeding in secret. There is another solution available to him, and it's the one he had not seen yet. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, but when he had thought this over, this Joseph, when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And then the angel goes on to explain how she came to be pregnant, that she'll give birth to a son. He's going to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from his sins. This is an option that Joseph had never considered before. But let's just put all this in context for a moment. The angel appears to him, it says, in a dream. And this is different than how the angel appeared to Zechariah and Mary, both in the Gospel of Luke. It says that the angel appeared to them while they were awake, while they were going about whatever functions they happened to be doing. In Zechariah's case, he was burning incense at the altar in the temple. In Mary's case, it doesn't tell us what she was doing. It simply says that Gabriel appeared to her. They were awake and conscious. But in Matthew's story about Joseph, he's asleep and he has a dream and he hears two things in his dream. Number one, what he now needs to do. And number two, who Jesus is. There is a clear emphasis in the message given to Joseph in the dream. And it is not about what he's to do. It's about who Jesus is. The angel tells him that, uh, uh, that this child that, uh, that Mary is carrying is um, important and significant. But before he, the angel even gets into that, the angel addresses Joseph in a peculiar way. The angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. This son of David is very important because remember, Matthew's written to a Jewish audience. So they're looking for a Davidic Messiah. In other words, someone to come forward to be the saving king of the people of Israel who is from the lineage or the house of King David who lives centuries, centuries before. So they're looking to this Davidic leader to come forth. So Joseph 
as you know from earlier in Matthew's gospel, that big long genealogy the gospel starts with, there's a lineage that can be traced from David to Joseph. So he's addressed in this way by the angel. And he's simply told not what to do. He's simply told to not be afraid to take Mary as his wife. It's really peculiar language. Again, we talked about this a couple of times throughout this series we're looking at in the God, uh, the With Us God series in Advent, that each and every one of these individuals has a choice to make. And here, Joseph's choice is very much similar to Mary's choice and other choices. The angel doesn't tell Joseph what to do. He simply says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And the fear here is real for Joseph. Keep in mind, this is a patriarchal society. So by accepting the situation Mary is in, he's directly communicating to the public that he's implicitly had had sexual relationship with Mary. You see, it would be very difficult for him to continue with the marriage, but yet maintain his narrative that he hasn't had any sort of sexual relationship with her. Nobody would believe that. So while this is not true, there would be a clear expectation that they conceived a child before marriage, which was uncommon but not unheard of in the ancient world. So the fear here is that he's going to have to accept the same burden as Mary, the same stigma she's under, the same shame she's under, the same you know, side-eyed look that Mary's going to get for having a child before she was married is one now he is going to have to share with her, and he chooses to do this. And so what Joseph does here is he makes a choice to follow Mary's example. And we don't actually read what Joseph does until we get down to verse 24. Remember, the angel doesn't tell Joseph what to do. It just simp- The angel simply says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And that's the end of Joseph's uh, invitation to act. The bulk of the message that's given to Joseph in this dream isn't about what he's supposed to do, but it's about who Jesus is. It says that Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so this is not like some kind of uh, story that circulated in Greek and Roman paganism of the, of the Greek or Roman gods coming amongst humans and, and uh, impregnating women. This is not that kind of story. This is a supernatural act that she's conceived in a miraculous fashion, that this child will be a son to them. In other words, they're both going to raise this child, and that Joseph is given the same instruction as Mary that they're to name him Jesus. And remember, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves, the covenant name for God, Yahweh, that God saves. The angel goes on to say that he'll save his people from his sins, and then the angel cites Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's where our our sermon series, The With Us God, comes from Isaiah 7, 14. The With Us God is Emmanuel. God is with us. That Jesus is here and present in the reality in which we live. And that opens up a key passageway to us here as Joseph struggles with the solution presented by the angel. That God often moves in unconsidered ways. Sometimes we say God moves in mysterious ways. Uh, mysterious would imply that uh, somehow uh, that God is moving in a way that no one notices. Well, in this case, God is moving in a way that, that is, not, uh, is very noticeable. It's very conspicuous. So it's not mysterious in that way, but it is unconsidered. No one had thought about this option. Joseph had certainly never thought about the option of taking Mary as his wife. 
God works and moves in the space outside of the ways in which we think as human beings. Joseph, despite his compassion even for Mary in terms of quietly divorcing her, never actually considered moving forward with the marriage. It was an option, although his survival instinct eliminated it. He assumed, as others did, that Mary conceived this child with another man. That's what's that's conventional thinking, normal thinking. That's what his experienced thinking tells him. And all of that keeps him from seeing this other option, that he will bear the burden with Mary for the sake of the child to be born among them. So what happens in our own lives is this, is that we often miss the work of the holy because we refuse to consider how God might move beyond our own limitations. There are times, yes, that God moves in mysterious ways, but often what we find is that God tends to move in unconsidered ways, ways that we did not think were possible, but are very conspicuous and very apparent. Well, this story ends with Joseph taking action in verses 24 and 25. It says, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. It's interesting that the language shifts in verse 24. At no point in the angelic message was Joseph told or commanded what to do. But as the story is told in verse 24, it says that Joseph awoke from being asleep and he did exactly as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. It's interesting that that Matthew's gospel, uh, the actual nativity story, the Christmas story, is embedded in verse 25. It says, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. So apparently somewhere in there, Jesus was born. It's just Matthew doesn't even bother describing the episode. The Magi come later when Jesus is older, but the actual birth of Jesus, that's it. Matthew doesn't even describe the actual birth, just simply that when Jesus was born, Joseph named him Jesus. You see, there's no hint of consideration or hesitation. Joseph acts immediately on what he's heard. And again, Joseph, like Mary, has to make a choice. After hearing the purpose and the plan that God has laid out for both of them, he must choose what he's going to do. He took Mary as his wife once their betrothal was over, and she was likely quite pregnant when they actually wed. They are now in a partnership with the Holy Spirit, which will eventually require them to leave. As we keep reading uh, further in Matthew's gospel, we're going to find that an angel comes to Joseph another time to tell him to flee to Egypt to save Uh, Jesus from an infant side that is uh, ignited by Herod. It says then that, that Joseph kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth. Now, there's a, a, an Orthodox and a Roman Catholic teaching that Mary is ever virgin. There's no hint here that Matthew's trying to hold on to the ever virginity of Mary, but rather simply saying that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Mary is a holy vessel. And so his actions display not just his cooperation with what has been instructed to him, but also an abiding faith. It's, he's, there's a way in which Joseph appreciates and values what's happening to Mary in a way in which he offers her a, a, a kind of a, a, an indemnification or a, a, 
a, a way in which he protects her. It says that he keeps her a virgin until she gives birth to a son. There's this notion that Joseph's a believer in the message just as much as Mary is a believer in the message. And that opens up a key passageway for us in that our choice to live with God is actually complete surrender. This is what Joseph does. It's complete surrender. Joseph demonstrates a tremendous amount of faith and obedience in maintaining his betrothal with Mary. He puts himself at great risk as she is at great risk. So he joins her in that process. His dedication to her role in the Jesus story is not guarded. It's not tepid. He is fully engaged, 100% invested in doing everything he can to ensure that the angelic message that was given to him and the message that was given to Mary comes to reality. And what we need to remember is that our choice to live with God is complete surrender. When we do this, you know, we need to remember that um, that our life with God is not about partial surrender or compartmentalized surrender. It's about complete surrender. We're often trusted, are, are tempted to trust God only to a certain point. And then oftentimes we try to mitigate the risk. In other words, there's a, there's a moment at which our our uh, self-preservation kicks in to protect ourselves and that we don't want to do too much because we're not really sure God is going to provide. And when we do this, we, we tie the hands of God from the amazing and the miraculous. So in a sense, remember, if we leave God nothing amazing or miraculous to do, it's our way of ensuring that God doesn't do anything amazing or miraculous. So each day, in our own lives, on our own discipleship, we have to have a continual reminder to completely surrender our lives to God, no matter the challenges that sit before us. There's a, a daily ritual almost in which we allow God to work and to move on our lives completely, knowing that we will be tended to and cared for by a God who loves us. If you have comments or reflections, I'd love to hear them. Please visit my website, revcraig.com. Click on News in the upper right-hand corner, and then you'll see from the drop-down menu, Podcasts. Click there, and then click on a particular episode, and below you can leave a comment. I'd love to be engaged with you in that space. I'd also encourage you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurchofseattle.org, ffmc.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. Passages is going to be taking a break for a few weeks. I'll be back with you right after the beginning of the year with a new series of messages that we're going to be starting here at First Free. I hope you'll join us for those conversations and join us in listening to passages as we tend, uh, as we lean in to growing in God's word and God's uh, truth uh, at work in our lives by the power and mystery of the Holy Spirit. For now, thank you all for listening. I bid you grace and we'll see you in the new year. Bye-bye. Thank you.